Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, I'm Rachel Woody, and I'm here with Earl Jones of Apicella, and we are at Apicella Winery on June 6th. And Earl, I'm gonna start with probably an obvious question, but why wine? Good question. Uh, Food probably came first, then wine. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest in a family that, uh, they were not teetotalers, but they did not drink wine with a daily meal. As I, I'm a scientist, and as I trained in science and left the rural Midwest, I went to the big city and I found out that a lot of people drank wine. And then I began to go to Europe to present papers, and always wine was served at the dinners, and it really made the food better. And so I could see the food-wine pairing thing, and I, I became a foodie wine kind of guy, always curious uh, why the wines in Germany and France were different and why the wines in Italy and Spain were yet different again. Mm. That was my beginning. And what led you to Southern Oregon? Pursuit of a climate zone. Uh, It was a pursuit of a dream of bottling Tempranillo that would be on par with the fine Spanish Tempranillos of Rioja, and in the later years, the, Re, the Ribera del Duero section. And uh, we thought that the principal component to the quality in those areas was the climate, because Tempranillo was grown in many places in Spain. But only in those two areas did it achieve high quality status and command, uh, you know, economics is one way to measure quality. And wines from those areas commanded a big price compared to the wines grown in warmer climates and in colder climates. So we figured there must be something similar. And we looked up the climate and it was virtually identical in terms of the length of the growing season and in how hot it got during that interval that you could grow plants. So we simply, as Americans who were living back east, we sought out that kind of a Spanish homoclime, if you would in America and located the best fit in the Southern Oregon area, uh, roughly Douglas County, uh, Jackson and Josephine County. Now you and your wife Hilda are not trained winemakers, at least not when you first started. No. Um, Tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and and the research and hard work that you did to prepare for getting into the wine business. I, uh, from childhood, I was interested in in, uh, science. Uh, In college, I was intending to get a PhD in chemistry. And, you know, career plans change, change. And one of my professors talked me into going to medical school. And her rationale was that uh, if I wanted to do research, I could do research with an MD degree 
and compete with people who had a PhD degree. And that the MD degree had the added component of being mobile and flexible. If I, at a later date in life, chose to change careers, I could probably practice medicine somewhere if I needed to. She was right, because when we came to this Southern Oregon climate and settled here in the Umpqua, was the first time in my life I'd ever practiced medicine. And I was in my 50, I was 54 years old and had never been away from the university and earned my uh, living without an academic appointment. And I could see that I didn't have the money to develop Tempranillo into a varietal wine and, and do the other experimentations I wanted to do unless I had some source of uh, daily bread and shoes for my children, <laughs> literally. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a four-year-old and a 12-year-old. And so I did something I never thought I'd do. I became a local doctor. And I practiced medicine here for nine years. At the same time, I was working in the, at night to get my vineyard going. Right. Now, both of your children, could you just talk a little bit about them and growing up in the wine industry and now what they're both doing? Sure. Well, I actually have five children. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I have a, a son who's in the viticulture and wine world himself. He's a climatologist and is uh, prominent on the international uh, scale. Uh, a year or so ago, he was uh, in Decanter Magazine's 50 Most Important People in the Wine World. He was number 34. So uh, he's a big shot and I grow grapes and, and uh, farm and make wine. Uh, my, I have two daughters who do not live in Oregon. Uh, they're child number two and three. One lives in Colorado, one lives in Hawaii. They're involved in our business and that they represent our wine sales in those states. Uh, they do a good job. And then the two children that Hilda and I had together uh, are uh, one, of, uh, one of them designed our label, our original label. That's uh, Hannah. And uh, she also designed this building that we're in. She has a design firm in Portland and is a very popular interior designer. She did the architecture for the building as well. And we allowed that. We had her compete with the architects and we liked her design better. And Oregon law does not require that you be an architect to design a building. It requires that the building be engineered to the mm. specifications of the architect. So we had an engineer engineer her drawing Mm -hmm. The other, uh, uh, the youngest one graduated from university, both of those uh, girls went to the University of Oregon. They, uh, the youngest one graduated last year and she's gamefully employed in Portland. Uh, when you and Helda came onto the scene in Southern Oregon, what was it like in the wine industry at that time? Well, we were the, <clears throat> we were the seventh winery uh, to make wine, uh, let me see, how do I state that? At that point in history, there were six wineries here producing. Uh, we, were the, we became the seventh winery in the Umpqua in 
the rest of the Southern Oregon AVA, uh, there were six additional wineries. So we were the 13th winery in Southern Oregon. And that tells you something about the time frame because we bought our land 21 years ago and became bonded winery number 206 in 1994, I think, and then, or 95, something like that. So that's less than 20 years uh, Southern Oregon has seen the growth that it has. What was sort of the atmosphere, the general spirit of the few winemakers that were in this area, and how has that evolved over time? Uh, it, it's changed in a very positive direction. Uh, this area was, um, uh, how do you say, uh, it was stagnant. It was in the doldrums, I would say. Uh, the wineries here were fundamentally growing what their neighbor grew. Not that that's wrong, but they weren't exploring the full potential of their climate and soil uh, soils of this region. And <clears throat> the uh, wines of this region were not attracting a lot of attention. I, I'm not, I don't, don't know how to say that so that it sounds in a positive way, but that's the truth. Uh, Robert Parker uh, didn't bother to write up the wines of Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. He paid attention to the Pinot Noir of the North Willamette Valley. So that was part of Hilda and my motivation was to try to understand what we might grow besides Tempranillo. We, we were so cocky that that was going to work. Uh, but we began to think, what else might we uh, push the envelope and see work? And then when we saw that Tempranillo indeed worked. Our, our first vintage with temper, of Tempranillo was very, very good. It, it uh, won gold medals, uh, it sold in Portland restaurants. There was quickly a demand. We had a clientele coming to the winery. Uh, and then our 1998 Tempranillo, that was our third wine, uh, won the San Francisco International uh, Wine Competition's Tempranillo Division besting all Spanish entries and became the first American varietal Tempranillo, as certainly in the modern era, to garner that kind of uh, acclaim. And with that, we said, yes, our ideas, based on science, worked. It was really very simple. And so at that point is when we commenced planting the other varieties to see how many of them would work. And we, we planted 25 different wine grapes, 13 different table grapes. The table grapes we don't sell, we, we don't make wine from them. They, they're, they're, I just mentioned the number and, uh, and they're, they're ever, all the employees take them home for their children and we eat them at our table and we serve them in the tasting room and things. But uh, that's a sideline. The uh, real story is the wine grapes. So you did a, a tremendous amount of science, especially surrounding the Tempranillo grape. 
Was there a bit of personal influence in there as well as to why you chose that varietal? Sure. In uh, all those trips to Europe that I made in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, the place I enjoyed most was Spain. It, uh, in some strange kind of way, it reminded me of home mm. back in the Midwest. And no, it doesn't look like the Midwest, but the people, they're, they're genuine. Uh, their wines are really genuine. Their foods are, are genuine. And <clears throat> I became interested in the grape varieties that were grown in Spain and Portugal, probably as a consequence of the people and their food and, and their culture, as much as anything. And I couldn't believe that California which is known for making Cabernet, Merlot, almost every variety that is grown in France, in Germany, and Italy, would not make Tempranillo when it was the fourth most planted red grape on earth. It's not an obscure minor grape. So that was our motivation. It was like a, a mountain unclimbed. You know, when you get to the pinnacle, and you said, I climbed this sucker. Uh, that's kind of what it's like. Could you tell us the story of the origins of Abacella, which is the name of your winery? Sure. Uh, Abacilar is a, uh, a Spanish verb. Actually, not Spanish so much as it is Gallegan and, and Portuguese. And it derived from early Latin in the western Hispanola area of Spain. And it means to plant a stick, in particular a grapevine stick or cutting. Uh, the A before the word basello means, means to stick in the ground, literally. We stuck the first Tempranillo in the ground in the northwest and named it Abacella, which is the third conjugation of Abacilar. So Basilar, Abacelimos, and Abacel. I love that story. It's, and it truly is a verb. It means work. Mm. Verbs work. <laughs> Very true. Um, to get back to the industry for a minute, we've been asking everybody, where has Southern Oregon been? And where do we see it going? And, and what can it be known for? I mean, Willamette Valley is very much Pinot Noir, at least according to marketing. Sure. What is Southern Oregon known for? What can it be known for? We don't know yet, mm -hmm. because the history is too short. The, uh, you know, I think Tempranillo is on the list of things that it'll, that it'll be known for. You can also make very good Syrah here. Uh, you can make uh, excellent Malbec. Uh, the, some of the white grapes that are uh, important are Albarino, uh, Vermentino, Viognier. Some of the best Viogniers I have had from anywhere on earth are from Southern Oregon. It's very, they're very good. Um, I, I, I think that um, it's like the French 
French wine grower giving advice to the people in the New World, he said the first three or four hundred years is what's difficult. And that's where we are in our first hundred years, literally, about maybe a hundred and ten or twenty. And so as this all settles out, uh, we'll know. Because of the multiple climate, microclimates, in the Southern Oregon AVA and the multiplicity of soil types we have, it's quite probable that there will be more than one thing that will survive. The, the things that will survive best will be the ones that survive economically. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, uh, when everything else is over, you have to sell the product and Southern Oregon, with a small population compared to the state, you know, what, what percent does Southern Oregon represent of the state's population? 15%? 10%? I don't know. Portland, yeah. Oregon has about 4 million people, and the greater metropolitan Portland area is about 2.5 of that. So you can see that Southern Oregon is a fraction. What I'm getting at is the consumer base is not here. Mm -hmm. Southern Oregon must be able to take its bottled wines to the marketplace of the world and have people at that level say, these are truly fine wines and I'm willing to pay to get those wines. If you make a wine here in Southern Oregon and you sell it to the guy who lives down the street, that will not influence what happens in 300 years from now. Mm -hmm. It's the macroeconomy that will eventually tell us what we can grow best. People in California and New York, Illinois, Florida will ultimately dictate what we grow in Southern Oregon. They've already dictated what is grown in the North Willamette, in part because the North Willamette climate is so restrictive. It's an actual advantage to a single tune marketing mm -hmm. because they really can only grow Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris as their two principal varieties. And that means that they have a unified story when they take their wines to New York. Right. In Southern Oregon, with the pluripotential we have here, uh, we don't have a single repetitive marketing push. That dilutes our effort. But it doesn't change anything. It, it means that they will still determine what we grow. The only reason that uh, you enjoy the uh, Fine, whatever it shall be. Let's leave wine for a moment. Let's talk about Roquefort cheese. Why don't you get it from North Africa? Or Wisconsin? Because it doesn't work there. Right. And so the rest of the world has determined that Roquefort shall be a cheese that we all like and we buy. So you do something well, 
and other people recognize that and that's what determines the future. What has been your involvement in the wine industry beyond Abacello's doors? Well, uh, I'm a kind of guy that uh, gets involved. Yeah, uh, I don't uh, go back in a back room and, and ponder. I, I, do, I do that too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, soon after I, got a, I arrived in Oregon, I became involved with the uh, Oregon Wine Advisory Board. I wanted uh, to be represented on that board. And uh, I was on the Oregon Wine Board. No, the, what was it called? The OWA, the one that was founded here in Douglas County. Uh, and then later on, when the Wine Board was reorganized, I was one of the uh, first uh, directors of that from uh, 03 until 09. I did two, three-year terms on there. Came off in 09. I was president of the Umpqua Valley Wine Growers back about 2002, 2000, something like that. I was president of the Southern Oregon Wine Growers. I've been a member of the American Society of Enology and Viticulture. Uh, I, was one, I was the founding president of uh, the Tempranillo Advocates and Producers and Amigos Society. It's a national organization of people that have, uh, are like-minded and grow Tempranillo in America. We have about 120 members. Mm. We put on, uh, we do educational promotions of Iberian grapes that are grown domestically in North America and made into wine here. We do a show down in San Francisco every year. And uh, well, we've done other things, but anyway, that's fundamentally our group. Sort of a heightened awareness of Tempranillo, Grenache, Albarino, Port, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Been a lot of fun. What would you say is where your passion lies, or some of your, your favorites in Abacella and in the industry? You're talking about grape varieties? We can talk grape varieties, just um, in a very large picture, Oregon wine, where you could, because you've been very involved, where has been a lot of your interest or passion my passion lies uh, in the warm climate varieties uh, as, a, as a group. Uh, in other words, um, Tempranillo, uh, Syrah, varieties that are in the southern part of Europe. That's their nativity today. And those uh, vines do well in the warmer climates of Oregon, and that's what I enjoy most. Uh, I enjoy those with the foods I like. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I, that's my passion. Where do you see Avicella going? Uh, nowhere. <laughs> Good. Good. I see it, uh, you know, staying here. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll probably be around a long time. Hilda and I mm -hmm. like it very much here. Uh, you know, we don't know for sure what the line of succession will be. We have uh, five children. It's probable that one of those children will take over the winery someday. Uh, but I'm not in any hurry for them to. I'm having too much fun. Okay. 
Uh, Hilda equates uh, what we do here is uh, like, for me, it's like an outdoor laboratory and an indoor laboratory. So on the sunny days, I'm outside. And the other days, I'm indoors, but it's all a laboratory, and I can experiment and uh, play. And that's where I came from. Mm -hmm. What is a question that I haven't asked you that I probably should have? Or is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? No, I'm an open book. I've told you everything I know. <laughs> yes, you've been very generous with your time, definitely. Yeah. And I've, you know, given you all my, uh, you know, I always want to know the background on things. That's part of me. Yeah, I want to know where it came from. Yeah. And I, uh, that's why I was, I've been interested in the history of, uh, of the wine in Oregon and in Southern Oregon. And so, you know, it's, it, it, do you know uh, where in America they made the first wine on the West Coast? Fort Vancouver? That's where they had the first vines planted. Oh, um, well then I would say Southern Oregon, but that's... I actually don't know the answer yeah. to my own question, but it wasn't in California. No. Because that wasn't America, that was Mexico. Right. right. And I think it was somewhere here in Oregon, it was the first mm -hmm. wine in the USA in Western America. Yeah. Yeah. Now, exactly where, I wish somebody like you guys would dissect that out. We would be of immense help to people if they could understand that. Mm -hmm. how, how would it help? Well, it would just comfort you inside to know that it came <laughs> from this place. Right. Well, the, what we found is the question of origins is in, becoming even more important as Oregon starts to make its way onto the wine scene permanently. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm finding that in documenting the history and in talking with folks like yourself, legacy is incredibly important, not only for that feeling inside, but for things like marketing. Sure. You know, if you can tell your story and trace it all the way back and tell people why it matters, it's incredibly powerful. So, yeah, we're, we're working on it. <laughs> well, keep up the good work. Uh, no, I have nothing else that, um, that I am compelled to stay. Say. All right. Well, thank you so much, Earl. We'll go ahead and stop the official recording. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.